0: Welcome to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from very good security. This is a show for fintech builders and leaders looking for a deep dive into the intersection of payments and data security. You're about to hear a conversation around payments, fintech, data security, and more. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Vault. I'm Amanda Caroccio, the Director of Partnerships at VGS, and I am so excited to have a very special guest today, Samantha Edis. Samantha is the founder and CEO of Park Place Payments, which is a Salesforce as a service fintech. Also among her many, many accomplishments, which honestly will probably only scratch the surface of today, Sam was named one of 2021's 100 Women of Impact by Entrepreneur Magazine. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So I want to get into how you wound up in payments because looking at it at a surface level, you were a best-selling author after HBS and then somehow wound up in the pretty niche space of payments. So can you walk us through how you got to payments?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not an obvious story. So, there were a couple things that that landed me here. One was I've always been passionate about women and careers and helping women, you know, achieve maximum success often As part of that, a thread throughout has been financial independence for women. It's something I was passionate about since I was a kid, and my mom kind of instilled it in me, and it's something that I teach my own children today, and I try to kind of spread the gospel because after working with thousands of women, I have seen how scary it is to not have money of your own, to not earn money of your own, and to be in a financially dependent situation where it limits your choices and your freedom. So together with that, I had a front row seat to the payment processing industry about 12 years ago now. I went to a kind of boondoggle conference for the top ISOs in the industry and all the guys, it was 20 male-owned companies, they'd all arrived on private planes. And I said, where are the women? Where are the people of color? And they kind of laughed at me. And the you know competitive athlete I was as a child kind of came out, and I thought okay one day i 'm going to come back and crush these guys and Then, when I was on a book tour for my last book, which was six years ago now. It was all about how to thrive professionally and personally at the same time. It was geared towards women. And I spoke around the country at, you know, tons of big companies, everyone that you've heard of, and and then at a lot of women's conferences. And the one group of women I was unable to help were the women who left the workforce and wanted to get back in but found very few opportunities and many of them had started selling multi-level marketing products for their friends, kind of like the modern day Avon lady. They were selling skincare and essential oils and clothing and, And, you know, beauty products to friends who didn't really want them and just bought them because they felt sorry for them. And these women weren't even really making martini money. Most of them actually, when I dug into it, were losing money. And so something clicked for me. I thought, okay, what if I could create basically the Avon of financial services? What if I could train this, you know, group of people that's hungry for an opportunity to earn recurring revenue in a way where they couldn't ever lose money because we train everyone for free online? And you can only you know change your financial circumstances. the more The harder you hustle, the better you'll do. so I, I set out to sort of prove that this could work, and I spent the first year kind of testing the model to make sure that this was a viable concept.
0: I actually, in my past life, spent a lot of time talking to new fintechs, new payments businesses on the visa side of the house, on their venture investing team. And I'm pretty confident that we never met any company that was really focused on the people side of the equation. So how did you arrive at that? And was it something about payments specifically that made you think, all right, there's something here that needs to be fixed or improved?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I noticed that every merchant I'd spoken with was very frustrated with their experience, their service side experience with their payment processor, whether it was a dentist or a hair salon or, you know, a yoga studio, they were all really unhappy with their experience. They felt like they weren't being given fair pricing. There was like shady tactics involved. There were hidden fees on their statements. And then when they would call because there was a problem because in payments, something always goes wrong, um, there was really no one on the other end. And that frustration led me to think, okay, something is broken here. And when I was on this trip, ironically, there had been, it, it was a boondoggle you know, for these ISOs. But at that time, um, the Durbin Amendment had just been passed, which was capping the fees. Well, you know this well, probably, Amanda, but, <laughs> but yeah, so so they were capping the fees that, you know, Visa Master could charge for on debit cards. But the thing that Dick Durbin didn't understand at the time is that if you don't also cap the amount of fees, the middleman can charge. And you're basically just helping the middleman. You're not helping the end customer. And these guys were having champagne toasts about the fact that they were gonna pocket millions more than expected because of the Durban Amendment. So not only was I astounded by the lack of diversity in the industry, but I was also astounded by the dishonesty. And I thought, okay, this needs to be disrupted. And what's so interesting, what you said, is is so so insightful because I'm really trying to disrupt it from the people side. And people are constantly wanting to talk about, you know, the hardware changes and the software changes in the the industry. And those will always happen, right? There's always – a new shiny object. There's, you know, we need Apple Pay. We need Google Pay. We don't want to have to sign on our receipts anymore. There's always a development. But if you don't have a middle person that you can trust who is servicing your account and really making sure that you're always up to date with your PCI compliance and that you have modern technology, then you're really going to be unhappy. And ironically, I think the farther into sort of so much VC money has gone into the latest and greatest technologies but when you look at 80% of the market they just want a simple solution they want a terminal or an or an e-commerce solution that allows them to accept apple pay do it seamlessly get you know quick funding and that's it they don't want all the bells and whistles and so it's ironic because i think the more the sort of more we develop the technology the further we get from the end customer which is really the merchant
0: and when you think about educating some of these merchants who are pretty new to payments. And then I think also your sales, your account executives as well are mostly new to payments. How do you go about breaking down what can be like a very convoluted and complicated space for both the merchants and for your new AEs?
1: Yeah. So it's funny you say that because just recently I've kind of come to admit the fact that like you we know we're going to be in 2023 we're launching other additional financial products to sell to small businesses so we're going outside of just payment processing but ironically payment processing was like our guinea pig product and it's probably the hardest product we're going to sell right cuz yeah. <laughs> it's really complicated there's so many interchange rates and and it's a lot and so we've really kind of made the process super accessible for people no matter what background they have so in the beginning that first year i mentioned to you where i was going around the country I was filling rooms with people with zero background in financial services. So we had former lawyers and flight attendants and Olympic gold medalists, doctors, tattoo parlor owner. I mean, really, really extensive different diverse backgrounds. None of them had financial services experience. And we went to six cities and trained them. When we did that, we had two days of training. It was like a day and a half and half a day would be spent just on crunching numbers. And as you might imagine, people's eyes were rolling back in their heads. Like they were like, this is insane. I don't want to be part of this. Then we realized, hold on, we don't need to Make people crunch the numbers. Like to make it scalable, we should be doing that in house. And all they need to do is really create that relationship with the merchant and typically they already have that relationship because most people are already embedded in their communities they have relationships with their kids pediatricians and their you know their salons and their favorite toy store and their favorite gift store and bookstore and car wash and plumber and landscaper and so on and so they're really selling to their community so now we've really made it so that the entire job as an account executive which is our fancy word for agents at Park Place the entire job is really just fishing and pitching and then once the merchant says yes our team swoops in we onboard them get them through underwriting train their team and do all of the servicing and then that account executive is free to go sell their next account so we really do all the heavy lifting what we offer our customers is a free payment checkup which compares their pricing service and technology to what park place offers and we never pressure a merchant. And then they can see if it makes sense to switch. So what happens is our account executives will fill out the online payment checkup. It goes directly back to my team. My team puts together a beautiful presentation for the merchant. And then that account executive presents it within 48 hours of doing the payment checkup. And if they say yes, the account executive is done and goes on to their next account.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. And Double clicking a little bit on the number crunching, I know that in payment processing, it can kind of be this race to the bottom, people fairly or unfairly can say it's a little bit of a commodity. Is there anything else aside from the payment checkup that Park Place does that you think really, you know, in a positive way makes it not just about the processing rates and being the lowest rate possible?
1: I completely agree with you. It is a race to the bottom in pricing. And typically when someone is offered a rate, as you know, it's when they get their statement, you know, Rick who sold them payment processing is long gone and it's nothing like he had promised. And then they're kind of stuck with his terminal they purchased, et cetera. So what we have done is we have one rate card. We don't negotiate. We offer the best rate from the beginning. I always say, come for the pricing because 90% of the time we are the lowest price, but stay for the service. So our attrition rates are a third of the industry average. And that's because you know we try to be a little bit like cheers. Like if you call for customer service, we know your name. Every six weeks, we do a, a payment check-in with our clients, just a, a proactive check-in. They're always like stunned, like you're calling just to see how I am. Yeah, okay, great. You know, we never let anyone become PCI non-compliant. We, we handle them through that process. Um, so everything we do is about proactive service. We would never let our clients become obsolete with their terminals or their technology. So we really try to be sort of their outsourced payment partners so that we take all of the headaches of payments off their plate. But of course it is a commodity. I mean. We sell... We resell whatever the latest and greatest is, right? So at this point, I think we cover about 60% of the market in terms of products. But if our merchants are demanding something in XYZ space, we'll go and do a deal with that company. So we're always adding new partnerships um, based on what our customers' needs are. And the great thing about it is we're a little bit technology agnostic. Like, you know, I don't ever have the problem of having like, you know, out of date inventory in a back room because we're not holding any inventory inventory. So we're just reselling whatever we feel our partner's best products are.
0: So it sounds like in terms of the payments products that your team is selling, it's pretty much customer demand driven. Is there anything else that you sort of factor in?
1: Um, No, I mean, that's really it. And I think at this point, I mean, there's, there's obviously like, you know, most of the products, while we probably have a menu of 200 products, we never want our clients to have to be overwhelmed by that kind of choice. So we're constantly curating our product list to make sure that we're recommending the best product for each client. And so there's probably about six different solutions that we recommend most often. Um, But again, it is a commodity and we differentiate ourselves by both the sales force and the service.
0: Got it. And then I know you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but You said 2023, maybe there's more financial products that we could see being sold by Park Place. Could you give us a little bit of a preview of what that might look like?
1: Yeah. So what happened is I I recognize that one thing that was missing from our account executive experience is, and, and by the way, like when someone launches with us, if they launched four years ago or they launched last week they get a Park Place Forever number, which says what number account executive they were, whether they were number 83 or 1140, that's their number. And so because they're all freelance positions, once they get their forever number, they're always part of the Park Place family. They could disappear for two years and decide to come back. It's something they always have. Like they're always technically trained once they go through the training and they're always welcome to return. So for us, you know, One of the things that's been missing from the experience is it's quite lonely. I mean, a lot of people are finding this out now because everyone wanted to work from home. And now people are like, hold on, I kind of miss being around colleagues and people. And so it's kind of lonely to work on your own and have to self motivate every day. And and so what we're doing now is we've designed this platform that's launching in January that's really going to make our account executives feel like they're virtually at a workplace. So when they log in, they're going to see all of their account executive colleagues there's a conversation here on selling to flower shops and there's a leaderboard over here and there's gamified training and there's congratulate, you know, Jim on his latest sale, et cetera. And so it really is going to feel like a virtual community. And that's what's been missing from the experience of our account executives. We have once a week webinars, but that's just not enough. And it's not enough to make people feel connected. And so we're super excited about that. So we've been in talks with a few companies who've approached us to sell their products. And we have committed to waiting until the platform is launched because once we launch it, it just makes it so much easier to train everyone to launch a new product and to really sell in the most effective way possible.
0: Well, I will definitely keep my eyes peeled <laughs> to see all the exciting news coming from you guys. Shifting gears almost entirely, I know we were chatting a little bit about how it's really hard to come across a piece of media today that mentions you know women entrepreneurs, women in the workplace without mentioning imposter syndrome. So I think you have a little bit of an interesting take on imposter syndrome and would love to hear and set, sort of have you share uh share your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, every few years a term comes around that takes hold. And you know, it used to be like all women were trying to have it all right even though men never tried to have it all it's it seems like we're like we we're like velcro to these really negative takedown terms in some ways and so i feel like imposter syndrome is a term that was like specifically created to make women feel badly and be like oh my gosh i have that right like if you read the book of you know psychiatry and you'll see all these disorders you're like oh my gosh i have that one and that one and that one I think that the more we talk about imposter syndrome, the more people feel like, oh my gosh, that's me. And before it used to be like, oh my, I'm not sure I'm experienced enough for this position. I'm, We'll see how it goes. And now that we have a label for it, it's very easy to just cling to that and for it not to be a passing phase. But I think it's something that women and men experience. I think everyone experiences some Out of insecurity at some point in their careers, at some point in their days, and some point in their experiences at a new company, at an old company, whatever it might be. And that's okay. And I think it's all about the mindset. You know, it's all about how you approach it. So if I go into a new position or have a new challenge and I, I say, oh, I have imposter syndrome, I'm basically like taking myself down, right? I'm saying, I am no longer worthy of whatever it is i 'm doing because I feel like an imposter, but that 's something that so many people at some point feel it used to just be called you know self doubt and I think sometimes by labeling things we can get into dangerous territory. so I am not a fan of talking about imposter syndrome of giving it life, and yeah i, I hope it I hope it dies quickly. <laughs>
0: it's sort of like, I'm going to get the statistics wrong. So I won't even mention them, but they did all those tests where they told girls that they performed worst on standardized math tests right before taking the test. And like with the group they told that to, they did worse than with the controlled group where they weren't told that. So I think it can be a little bit of a, yeah, something that we talk about a little bit too much and sort of makes a lot of women in the workplace feel like, you know, they do have it or they should have it. So I'm with you on that.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. I agree.
0: And I know that we also were chatting a little bit about you fundraising and would love to know your experience. I think you did fundraise before the pandemic as well. And then in the pandemic. And so what has that experience been like? And have you noticed any differences, pros or cons sort of, I would imagine you did in person before versus sort of this like virtual pitching and what, what's that like?
1: You know, it's funny. I really love in-person. I love connecting with people. So I think it was a little easier for me when I was in-person, although I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way it was. Because with my first round, you know, I'd hop on a plane to go meet with someone to talk about. You know, for one meeting, and now people will just say, Well, let's just zoom. So it's it's much rarer to to even have a company want to meet you in person, even now that we're a little bit out of the pandemic. I think that it's always hard, right? Fundraising is always hard. I try to see it as a game. It's the only way I know how to do it. So I have my spreadsheet. I really try not to take the nose personally. I realize that it's a numbers game. And so the more no's you get, the closer you get to a yes. I really believe that in my heart. So, you know, I track everything and I kind of – I don't feel like I ever run out of people to contact because I'm never afraid to cold contact people. You know, you just have to keep on going every day. And so for me, I'm kind of obsessed with something that I don't think enough entrepreneurs think about, which is how diverse their capital pool is in terms of the source. So we spend a lot of time thinking about the diversity of VC firms. And I don't think we spend enough time thinking as entrepreneurs about being committed to having a diverse group of people on our cap table. So this is our third round now. It's kind of like a, a seed slash post-seed round that we're doing in sort of anticipation of a big Series A next year. But right now we're just, you know, once we once we launch our platform, our company will be sort of a wildly different valuation and, and just at a different point. But for now, we're just kind of raising the minimum amount we need to get to the Series A. And I think, you know, what's been interesting is like, Every round, this is our third, every round I've been committed to having at least half of the cap table be women and people of color. And we've been able to achieve that. And I'm I'm so proud of who's in the round. Like I... I love bragging about our investors. You know, I have a dream of one day having all of the investors in a room together. But it's, it's you know, I think at this point, because it is the pandemic, I think it's a little bit easier to raise angel money than it is to raise VC money. Of course, it's also the summer, which is like not the ideal time to raise money. So I feel like it's just, you know, you weather the storms. And we have, you know, I would say we're, we've never been in a better position in terms of all of the opportunities coming our way. And we just became officially, you know, recognized as a woman-owned business last week, which was took us like a year to get through that red tape process, which was really exciting. And we have so many big things happening right now. So it's funny, like, you know, you try to balance your Focus on fundraising with also the focus on all the things happening inside the company and and um, with our customers and, and our account executives and our team.
0: In the summer, they literally take like BC holidays sometimes. I saw a tweet yesterday that someone reached out to 10 VCs and eight came back with an out of office uh, response. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is not an exaggeration. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. So for the last portion, I have a couple quick Kind of rapid fire questions for you. The first one, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. I know that you wrote the expert's guide. So was there one tidbit that you learned in speaking to all those experts that really stood out to you that you would share with all of us?
1: Yeah. So, so my first four books were this kind of anthology with Random House. They were all anthologies of a hundred experts giving their tips on their area of expertise. So it was like Barbara Corcoran wrote a chapter on how to sell a home faster. And, you know, Al Roker did how to plan a tailgate and Bobby Flay did how to barbecue and and Susie Orman did how to save money and so on. Ironically, out of all four Books. I think the most popular chapter ever was Frederick Fakai, who wrote a chapter on how to wash your hair, which I find so interesting because <laughs> it was like such a simple chapter. But just the tips in there that he gave were just like a little bit different and people, I think, just thought of, you know, it's something that every single person does every day. But like if you could do it a little bit better, it's kind of exciting. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, like he said, like always put the shampoo and conditioner in your hand before you put it in your hair like things like that that you might not have known but yeah there's so many it's funny because now my my free kids will pick up the experts' guides and start reading chapters I remember <laughs> when like my girls were really little and there was a chapter on how to kiss and they just thought that was
0: so funny you know <laughs> I'm gonna have to read the hair washing chapter because I I have a feeling some of those things maybe I've been doing it wrong the whole time so <laughs> I know. It was like
1: a chapter on how to flirt by the world's leading flirting expert and how to set a formal
0: table and yeah, all the things you kind of sometimes miss on the way to adulthood. And kind of continuing on the author piece of it, who's your favorite author?
1: Oh my gosh. I have so many. I'm kind of a book addict. So I read like a book a week. I'm a, a crazy reader. Yeah. So it's hard to say who my favorite author is. Like I have favorite books. I you know, I mean, it's ridiculous to be like, I loved, you know, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, but I I did, you know, I loved Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. But then more recently, I just read a book I love that I've been recommending to everyone by a woman named Meg Mason. And it's called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. And it's so good. And, you know, I'm just a huge, huge fiction reader. So Yeah.
0: Awesome. I will check that out. I am not an avid reader, but if someone profusely recommends something then I can, then I can pick it up and make myself read.
1: Yeah. Let me know what you think. I think you'll enjoy it for sure.
0: Awesome. And my last question is what's your favorite place that you've ever traveled to?
1: I would say my happy place is Bridgehampton where my family spends a lot of time. We love it there. Well, we... Took the kids a few summers ago to San Sebastian in Spain and we just had like the dreamiest week. My my kids are all foodies and they, they love good food and they really appreciate good food. And like my son's happiest, I mean, he was like, I think he was nine or he was eight years old at the time. And like we one night we had like an 11 course meal and he like loved it and he still talks about it, you know? So it, it it's been really fun. Like we don't have chicken finger kids, which is been really nice.
0: (laughs) I think I was more one of those. We'll we'll (laughs) see which one, which type I have. Well, Sam, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And to our audience, please go check out Park Place Payments, a very cool business that Sam's running. And if you have any suggestions, you can drop us a line at pod at verygoodsecurity.com. And with that, thank you again, Sam. And have you all tune in next week. You've been listening to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from very good security. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us to keep delivering the latest from the realms of payments and data security. Thanks for listening. Until next time.